Hey guys, welcome back to Two Changes. Hello. So, as always, before we jump into it, we're going to discuss our sponsor dog of the week. And if you have peeped our Instagram or Facebook page, you'll see that it is a lovely red-nosed pity. And her name is Miss Ember. She is a very loving two-year-old female red-nosed pit bull. She has been at the shelter since March of this year. She is fixed and potty trained. She was adopted previously, but taken back to the shelter due to her adoptive family separating. Sadness. She is great with other dogs and is kid-friendly. This young girl is so full of life and energy, but it is noted that she also prefers to be a couch potato, which I'm all about that life. Me too. So I love my little 15 year, or 15 year old. So I love my little 15 pound mutt. <laughs> she gets these little bursts of energy and she'll bring you a toy when she wants to play. Other than that, she'll go to her dog bed and burrow into her covers. The best. There you go. <laughs> and she was the sweetest girl at the shelter. Um, she loved belly rubs. And something else that should be noted is it was pretty funny when we give her a treat. It would like kickstart her. Oh yeah, for she some would reason. get the zoomies yes. real bad. She did like this kangaroo bounce and was like Sonic the Hedgehog. She was gone. So definitely check that out. And also if you want to reach out to the shelter about adopting, um, if you just mention our name, they're going to give you half off. Uh, if you want to adopt Miss Amber, um, so the adoption fee would typically be anywhere from 100 to 150, um, but they will cut that in half for you. And typically, you do an application, and it's accepted that day. And with the females, there's going to be a two-day hold, um, so they can get them fixed. And with males, it is your responsibility to get them neutered and they, they require that you do that within 30 days. Yep. Um, and that discount also applies to other dogs. So if you, you know, you see Ember or any of the other dogs that we're sponsoring this month and you're like, eh, I don't think they'd be a good fit, then, you know, that, that discount applies to all the other dogs. As long as you mention our name and say, hey, we heard about you know your adoption process and all that stuff through two Jane Doe's and they will work with you on that exactly and something else is uh, like I posted out on the Facebook and Instagram too today let's not forget about all the little kitties and kittens and all of them their uh, their adoption fee is also cut in half if you drop our name um, and then I understand that sometimes you can't adopt, uh, maybe you want to do a trial run, test the water, see if the animal's right for you, or you just want to alleviate some of the pressure on the shelter. They do have fostering opportunities as well. And that could be two days, it could be two weeks, it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. and, it, and what it does is it also helps the shelter gauge you know, what kind of personality that dog's gonna have and right. how they're gonna be around other dogs or other cats or kids or, you know, an elderly couple, you mm -hmm. know, stuff like that. So you're really not only helping helping them, but you're also letting the dog get out of the shelter for a while and get a break from being in there. Right, because it's so stressful on all of them. And, you know, they have opportunities available for all types. So if you say, hey, I don't really want to adopt, uh, a, a cat or dog right now. Um, I don't really want to foster one because I wouldn't be able to give it the appropriate 
uh, type of care and time necessary because my lifestyle is busy. You can also volunteer at the shelter. They're always looking for people to come out and help, whether it's walking the dogs, playing with them, just any way that you can help out. They just want you to stop in, fill out an application, and they'll get right with you. Yeah, you can even, you know, if any college kids or something like that's listening to our podcast, you can go to the shelter and just chill in the cat's room, finish your work. Play yeah. with the cats some and leave. Exactly. Like, that was one of the things they brought up. Like, if you just want to make it like a, a kitty Starbucks where you just go in, chill, read up on your book, study, type up notes, whatever the situation. As long as you give your cats attention and you just chill out, they're fine with it. They just need people there to, to show these animals some attention and give them something positive other than being surrounded by... 70 other loud dogs or you know 25 other cats that may or may not want to play (laughs) (laughs) exactly okay so jumping into today's episode we're going to tell you the story of one herbert bowmeister so this begs the question Have you ever been diagnosed with a mental disorder but never really got treatment? Then you started a family but then started going to gay bars, luring gay people back to your creepy mannequin pool party and kill them? Let's Let's talk about it. This podcast contains some adult language, graphic descriptions of crime scenes, sexual assault, and murder. Listener discretion is advised. So, like I said, Herb as we will call him, was born on April 7, 1947. His parents were Dr. Herbert E., who was an anesthesiologist, and Elizabeth Bowmeister. Together, the family lived in Indianapolis, Indiana, and Herb was the oldest of four children, and his younger siblings included his sister Barbara and two brothers, Brad and Richard. Now, after Richard was born, the Bowmeister family moved to a wealthy area of Indianapolis called Washington Township. By all accounts, Herb had a normal childhood. However, when he reached his teenage years, things kind of shifted and changed a little bit. And we don't mean the normal icky teenage boy things either. Yeah, we're not talking about rock hard socks, playboys in between the mattress. We're talking about some real weird uh, freaky stuff. So, good old Herb began to obsess over foul and repulsive things. He developed a morbid sense of humor and seemed to lose the ability to judge right from wrong. There were rumors circulating that he had urinated on his teacher's desk, and once he had even put a dead crow that he had found on the road on his teacher's desk. Sounds like he really had it out for this this teacher. Yeah, he just hated school. His classmates began distancing themselves, not wanting to be associated with his unhealthy behavior, and in class he was described as troublesome and unstable. His teachers worried for his well-being and reached out to his parents for help. So good job on their part for that. Yeah. 
His parents, too. Yeah, yeah, had, his parents, had too. Not just his teachers. To notice these changes in Herb. And his father sent him for a medical evaluation, which revealed that Herb was schizophrenic and suffered from multiple personality disorder. Whatever was done or attempted to help Herb is very vague, but it appears by all accounts they did nothing as far as treatment for this poor little Herb. Um, <laughs> poor little Herb. <laughs> poor little Herb. Um, and it should be said that during the 1960s, electroconvulsive therapy, or ECT, was the most common treatment for schizophrenia, and it was accepted practice to shock disorderly patients several times a day. And something else that should be noted is this was done not in the hopes of curing them or treating their mental disorder. Like, it was not a fixing solution. It was... If this patient gets out of hand, we're going to shock the shit out of them so we can get them under control and, you know, to be in compliance with whatever we're asking. But I think the idea behind it was, like, let's shock you so that the (laughs) neurotransmitters in your brain start making the correct connections that they're not making. (laughs) Well, however, they were just using it like an electric cattle prod, basically, like... You're going to quit doing this. So, anyways, and I keep saying patients because a lot of these people that were diagnosed with these, you know, these mental disorders ultimately were institutionalized. However, in the mid-1970s, drug therapy replaced ECT since it was more humane and productive. Wow. (laughs) Imagine that. A lot of the patients on drug therapy could lead fairly normal lives. However, again, it's not said whether Herb or not underwent drug therapy. So, we have no idea. And so I just he, myself in the eye. He may or may not have gotten <clears throat> treatment at all. Yeah. But he continued in public high school being able to maintain his grades but failing socially. The school's extracurricular activities focused on sports and members of the football team and their friends were the most popular clique. Of course. I mean, it's pretty typical high school stuff there. Right. And Herb continually tried to gain their acceptance, but was ultimately rejected. And I think that happens more often than none in any typical high school. Like, they got their little jockey clique, and all the little nerdy other people are just not, like, not cool enough to be a part of it. Oh, yeah, exactly. Uh, you gotta understand that the majority of these kids, the reason why they're in this clique is because they grew up together, they share the same lifestyle, their parents probably have money, and that's why they're getting their letterman jacket their senior year, so go you. <laughs> <laughs> but for Herb, it was all or nothing. Either he would be accepted into the group, or he would be alone. And sadly, he finished high school in complete solitude. So he decided to be alone. (laughs) He was like, fuck y'all, I'm out, peace. So after high school, Herb attended Indiana University. Here he also dealt with being an outcast due to his strange behavior. He ended up dropping out in the first semester. However, he was pressured by his father and he returned in 1967 to study anatomy, but again dropped out before the semester ended. But this time, he had met a woman there named Juliana Sater, and Juliana was a high school journalism teacher and part-time IU student. They began dating and found they had a lot in common. Besides being extremely conservative politically, 
they shared an adventure spirit and dreamed of having their own business. I'm gonna just say, like, for anybody who thinks there ain't nobody out there for you, there's always somebody. There's always somebody. If you don't believe in soulmates, you can believe in, like, today mates. <clears throat> today mates? Yeah. And, I mean, let's also talk about this for a second. She's a high school, like, journalism teacher. And he was studying anatomy this last time before he dropped out. How did they meet up with, like, this common interest of wanting to start a business? Somehow, to me, journalism and anatomy don't, like... There's no intersection of, like, entrepreneurship, like... I mean, maybe it was his weird, morbid sense of humor. And since she <laughs> writes books, maybe they wanted to... I mean, maybe. I don't know. Who knows? So, anyways, they end up getting married in 1967. But six months into the marriage, Herb's father had him committed to a mental institution where he stayed for two months. And this is the only concrete evidence that we have that he was ever institutionalized or treated however vaguely this may be we do know that he was institutionalized for two months and here's the kicker (laughs) the reasoning for it is entirely unknown yes and whatever happened though it, it didn't ruin their marriage juliana was in love with him despite his odd behavior so again there's always somebody out there for you girl even if you Mm -hmm. crazy you gotta be. Oh, so Herb's father pulled some strings and got him a job as a copy boy at the Indianapolis Star. He ran reporters' stories between desks and completed other errands. It was a low-level position, but Herb dove into it, ready to start a new career. So, Which, let's just say this. Up to this point, he's had no career Yeah, that we have any evidence of. Like, like, he went to college, he dropped out. He went to college, he dropped out and got married. Yeah, and now he's ready to dive into a new career other than being a total life dropout. He might have just been turning a new leaf, you know? Maybe, okay, okay, okay. His constant efforts to gain positive feedback from the higher-ups became frustrating. So, this is kind of similar to him back in high school. He was trying to get the acceptance that he wanted, and it just didn't seem like it was working out. Mm-mm. He became consumed over ways to fit in with co-workers, but never succeeded. Bitter and unable to hand his nobody status, he left the Indianapolis Star for a job at the Bureau of Motor Vehicles, or BMV. Or, as most people call it, out of Indiana, the DMV. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, her began this entry-level job with the BMV with a different attitude. At the Indianapolis store, he was childlike and overzealous, displaying hurt feelings when he did not find the recognition he was looking for. At the BMV, he became very bossy and combative towards his co-workers, lashing out at them for no reason, and I guess he was trying to imitate what he perceived as quote-unquote good supervisory behavior. I would just say, you had an entry-level job, but you ain't no supervisor. Yeah, you have supervised absolutely zero people. You can barely supervise yourself. And, like, could you just imagine, like, you're just sitting there like, Janet, do you have those notes? Uh, I'm finishing them up now, like... Why don't you have them? I'm like, <laughs> out of nowhere, like, bro, can you calm down? Like, you ain't my boss. Exactly. So, again, like multiple times in his past, Herb was labeled an oddball. 
His behavior was unpredictable and his sense of appropriateness was way off at times. For example, he sent a Christmas card to everyone at work that pictured him with another man, both dressed in holiday drag. But in the early 70s, few saw humor in that, and the talk around the water cooler was that Herb was a closet homosexual and a nutcase. And I think I should probably preface this here by saying, like, this episode is not bashing homosexuals for their lifestyle. This is, you gotta take, like, the time and everything else into the into consideration with this episode. So, don't say the, we might be saying the words. But we mean nothing like that at all. That is not coming from us. <laughs> no. No, not not at all. Like, this... Yeah. Yeah, it's a whole mess. Yeah, so... so after 10 years with the BMV, despite Herb's poor relationship with his co-workers, imagine that. Wow. Uh, he was recognized as a bright and ambitious person who produced results which earned him a promotion to program director. However... He managed to screw this up too. Oh my goodness. In 1985, within one year, within 365 days, he managed to become terminated after he urinated on a letter addressed to the then Indiana Governor Robert D. Orr. And this act upheld the rumors about who was responsible for some urine that had been found prior on his manager's desk. And if you could back up to Herb's little high school life, yep, he was he doing that to the teacher on his teacher's desk. So I just want to like, is homie marking his territory? Like that's what it sounds he, like to me. Like let me just pee on all these things and mark my territory. Herb like, is yes. Herb is into water games. <laughs> he is. What do you call him? Polo jockeys? Is that what he is? Mm, yeah. I have no idea. I don't either. I don't do sports. <laughs> of any kind. No. preface that <laughs> So nine years into his marriage, Herb and Juliana started a family. Their daughter, Marie, was born in 1979, son Eric in 1981, and their second daughter, Emily, in 1984. Oh, So we just be popping out kids. Everywhere. So... Before Herb lost his job at the BMV, things seemed to be going well. So Juliana quit her job to become a full-time mother, but had to return to work when he could not find steady employment after his termination. That would be so upsetting to, like, pop all these kids out. You finally feel like your life's in a good place. You decide, that's it, I'm done working. I want to stay at home and nurture these little wannabe psychopaths and try to keep them out of jail. And then, could you see her, like, dragging in, like, his crotch is soaked because he's pissing on everything. Like, it's like, I lost my job. So, what are we going to do? Well, what they did was... (laughs) He became a temporary stay-at-home dad. He was a caring and devoted father to his children, which to me is insane considering his background, but okay. Um, But being unemployed left too much time on his hands, and unknown to Juliana, he began drinking frequently and mingling at gay bars. In 1985, 
Herb received a slap on the hand after being charged in a hit-and-run accident while driving drunk. Six months later, he was charged with stealing a friend's car and conspiracy to commit theft, but managed to beat those charges as well. So, lucky him for just, like, slipping under the radar there. I mean, exactly, like, in, in today's time, you would never get away with, like, a hit and run. I mean, you would, too. A point if you if that other person didn't get your license plate number and all that other stuff they have your fingerprints somewhere they just they're not in the system yet so they haven't been able to identify you that's what I'm growing to understand about you what are you telling me that I'm a little like you're a criminal I don't know criminal in the meantime Herb bounced between jobs until he began working at a thrift store and at first he thought the job was beneath him which that's upsetting. I did all my shopping at thrift stores. Me either. Like, get some good her. stuff there. Exactly. At first, like I said, he thought the job was beneath him, but then he saw it as a potential moneymaker because one man's trash is another man's treasure. And over the next three years, he focused on learning the ins and outs of the business, which, you know, this is probably the second longest job he's ever had in his life. Right. Um,. During this time, his father, Herbert E., died, R.I.P. The impact that this had on Herb is unknown. Like, nobody. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> you just, no R.I.P. <laughs> nobody, like, I, I don't know. They, apparently nobody in the family made note of how Herb felt when his dad died. But then again, I guess that there was this weird relationship, like, even into his adulthood, where his dad had him committed for two months. That seems like it's a weird, strained relationship anyway. It so. might have been, but I mean, who knows? He could have felt some sort of way about it. Right. And maybe that is what initially made him snap. Maybe. Who knows? That and his untreated mental illness. <laughs> um, so, he went to his mother, the widow, and borrowed $4,000... And together, he and Juliana opened a thrift store, which they named Save-A-Lot. Woohoo! They got their own business. They got Look their own business. Anatomy and journalism unite. So, hold on. Is this the like, same kind of like Save-A-Lot that we see today? See, that I'm not sure of. Because that would be pretty cool. Because it kept autocorrect and the E in there. Mm-hmm. It's actually just like S-A-V a lot. But I don't know if the E was added later. Oh. But this business doesn't last for them, which we'll get into that in a minute. But, oh. so I don't know. Who knows? Um, they stocked the Save-A-Lot with gently used quality clothing, furniture, and other items, and a percentage of the store's profit went to the Children's Bureau of Indianapolis, which was a, a private nonprofit that serves the children and families in Indianapolis since 1851 by offering human services to the children and families that help them identify and address, address issues <laughs> that tear families apart. Business was booming. And the profit was so strong in the first year of opening the first store that Herb and Juliana opened a second store. Within three years, after living paycheck to paycheck, they had finally struck gold and they were rich. Man. Yeah. They really had things going for them. $4,000 and like six years of work and you're rich. Can't do that now. Hell no. $4,000 don't get you shit. 
No, it don't even get you a really good sign for your business. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> in 1991, Herb and Juliana moved into their dream home. Together, they lived on an 18-acre horse ranch called Fox Hollow Farms in the upper-class Westfield area just outside of Indianapolis. The large million-dollar semi-mansion had all the bells and whistles, which included a stable and an indoor pool. And this is the 90s. I mean, this is like you live in rich for the 90s with yeah. this. Surprisingly, Herb had become a well-respected, successful family man who gave to charities. For the first time in his life, y'all. He's finally got the acceptance that he's been wanting. For the first time in his life at like 40, he was finally... He made it. Making it. However, the stress from working so closely together soon followed. From the start of the business, Herb treated Juliana as an employee. He yelled at her for no reason, and in order to keep the peace, she took a backseat on business decisions. This took a toll on their marriage, and the couple argued and separated several times over the next few years. I'm gonna just say, if I gotta work with my spouse, I'd probably kill him. Mm-hmm. Because you gotta, you gotta have that time apart. Yeah. I mean, kudos for anybody who can make it work working together, working a business together, and all that stuff. Like, kudos to you, but I think I would want to wring somebody's neck. Y'all, I ain't gonna lie. My husband was deployed for 15 months. He came home. I took a week off work. By the end of that week, I was so ready for us to get back into the swing of things and have our own schedules again. And I love him. That's for somebody I love. Like, And not to mention the people I actually work with. But, I mean, it's too much. It can be. It can be very stressful when you're spending so much time together and you don't have time for yourself and you're working together, you're coming home together, and it's just, it's a Mm -hmm. lot. So, the Save-A-Lot stores had a reputation for being clean and organized, but the same could not be said about Herb and Juliana's new home. The once scrupulously maintained grounds became overgrown with weeds. Inside, it was no better because it was also a mess, and housekeeping was clearly not a priority to the Bowmeisters. The only area, hold on to your butts, that Herb seemed to care about was the pool house. He kept the bars stocked and the area filled with lavish decor, including mannequins that he dressed and positioned to give the appearance of an extravagant pool party. I just want to say that that, if I walk into your house and you got mannequins, like, placed around as if you got a whole group of people at your house, mm-hmm. I'm gonna, you're done, I gotta leave. Like, where's your door? Like, I ain't staying around for that. Oh my god, two things. One, did you ever watch the episode of Hoarders where this guy hoarded, like, arcade machines because he wanted to open like a, a game shop on the boardwalk at a beach and he wanted to call it Randy Land and when he would get haircuts he would save his hair because he had a collection of mannequins that he would glue the hair on. Nope, totally missed that episode. Yeah, that one was terrifying but two, anybody who watches Frasier, like the TV show, the brother of Niles, he was in a movie where like he had multiple personalities I don't know what kind of crazy he was but, like, he would be talking to people, and he ended up kidnapping a guy, and, like, brought him along for this, like, severe, like, mind cluster fuck, and 
but like he set the table and had all these plates out and was talking to thin air. And this guy that was just sitting there like, why did I have to get kidnapped by like this guy? It could have been anybody, (laughs) but it was him. Yeah. Anyways, super creeps. Anywho, Juliana and the children decided they were going to go stay with Herb's mother at her Lake Wawasee uh, condo in order to avoid the constant turmoil, which could you imagine? Poor little Emily Lawson is like, Daddy, look at this horse I drew. Like, I am talking to Bill about a business venture, and it's a mannequin with a flamingo shirt (laughs) and board shorts on. (laughs) Like, that's insane to me. Um, And, of course, Herb stayed behind in his own chaos to run the stores, or that's at least what he told Juliana. And in 1994, Herb's 13-year-old son, Eric, was playing in a wooded area behind the home when he found a partially buried human skeleton. Eric showed the grim find to Juliana, who showed it to Herb, and Herb told her that his father had used skeletons in his research and that he had buried it after cleaning out the garage. Surprisingly, she fucking believed him. I'm alive. I'm What? Buried. <laughs> Listen, at least I ain't talking with a lisp today. Oh my god. Thank you very much. Eric showed it to Juliana, and Juliana showed it to Herb, and Herb told her that her father used it when he was cleaning out the garage. He buried it. <laughs> oh my god. Buried. What am I supposed to say? You went in for it too. Oh my god, you were just like found a partially buried human skeleton. <laughs> I just say buried. Buried? Okay. Buried. A partially buried? That doesn't sound right. Okay, then you just say it the way you need to say it, and <laughs> I will cover my face. Just keep it moving. The dumb bitch believed him. Oh, Lord. And not long after the second save lot opened, the business began to just hemorrhage money left and right. Herb started drinking during the day and acting hostile towards customers and employees. The save lot store soon started to look like dumps. At night, unbeknownst to Juliana, Herb hung out at gay bars, then retreated to his pool house where he spent hours bawling like a baby about the dying business. She was worn out from worry. The bills were piling up, and her husband was just acting weirder and weirder every day. So while Herb and Juliana were trying to fix their failing business and marriage, a major murder investigation had begun in Indianapolis. In 1977, Virgil Vandegrift, a highly respected retired county sheriff, opened... Vandegrift and Associates, Inc., which was a private investigation firm that specialized in missing person cases. And in June of 1994, Vandegrift was contacted by the mother of 28-year-old Alan Broussard, who said that he was missing. When she last saw him, he was headed to meet his partner at a popular gay bar called Brothers. He never returned home. Could he possibly be buried in the backyard <laughs> can't stand you. No, but seriously. <clears throat> oh my god, my eyes. <laughs> Almost a week later, Vandegrift received a call from another distraught mother about her missing son. 
32-year-old Roger Goodlett had left his parents' home to go to a gay bar in downtown Indianapolis, but never arrived. Broussard and Goodlett shared a lifestyle, looked alike, and were around the same age. They both vanished en route to a gay bar. Bum, bum, bum. Vandegrift began distributing missing persons posters at gay bars around the city. Family members and friends of the young men and customers at gay bars were interviewed. Vandegrift learned that Goodlett was last seen willingly entering a blue car with Ohio plates. Vandegrift also received a call from a gay magazine publisher who told Vandegrift that several gay men had disappeared in Indianapolis over the previous few years. So there is definitely a trend Mm -hmm. going on. There's a pattern forming. They were now convinced that they were dealing with a serial killer, so Vandegrift took his suspicions to the Indianapolis Police Department. However, missing gay men were apparently a low priority, again, due to the times. It was presumed that the men had left the area without telling their families so they could freely practice their lifestyles. Vandegrift also learned about an ongoing investigation into multiple murders of gay men in Ohio that began in 1890. We backtracked a few years. We like a hundred years (laughs) in the past. Okay. Um, Vandegrift also learned about an ongoing investigation into multiple murders of gay men in Ohio that began in 1989 and ended in mid-1990. Bodies had been dumped along Interstate 70 and were designated as the I-70 murders in the media. Four of the victims were from Indianapolis. A few weeks after Vandegrift distributed the posters, he was contacted by a man named Tony Harris. Harris said he was certain that he had spent some time with the person responsible for Goodless' disappearance. Harris said he went to the police and the FBI, but they ignored his information. Of course. Vandegrift set up a series of interviews and a bizarre story began to unfold. Bum, bum, bum. Harris said he was at a gay club when he noticed a man who seemed overly fascinated by the missing persons poster of Roger Goodlett. He continued to watch the man, and something in his eyes told Harris that this man had information about Goodlett's disappearance. To pump him for information, Harris introduced himself. The man said his name was Brian Smart, and he was a landscaper from Ohio. When Harris brought up Goodlett's name, Smart became evasive. Didn't want to talk about it. Pretty typical. Kind of sounds guilty. Mm-hmm. And as the evening progressed, Brian Smart invited Harris to join him for a swim at a house where he was temporarily staying. Smart said that he was doing landscaping for the new owners who were away. Harris agreed and got into Smart's Buick, which had Ohio plates. Harris was not familiar with northern Indianapolis, so he could not say where the house was exactly. However, he described the area as having horse ranches and large homes. He also described a split rail fence and a sign that read, Farm Something. Harris described a large Tudor home and that he and Smart entered through the side door. He described the inside of the home as being packed with furniture and boxes. He followed Smart through the house and down the steps towards the bar and pool area, which had mannequins set up around the pool. Smart offered Harris a drink, which he declined. Good for him. Probably what saved his life. Smart excused himself, and when he came back, he was more talkative. 
Harris suspected that he had snorted cocaine or something like that. At some point, Smart brought up autoerotic asphyxiation and asked Harris to do it to him. Harris went along and choked Smart with a hose while he masturbated. That's a little interesting. That's a lot. Oh, but you know what? Why are they doing that? All these mannequins just stand around looking. <laughs> They're like, can we please go back to the old navy? <laughs> I like wearing comfy sweaters and mom jeans. <laughs> I didn't sign up for this. <laughs> oh my god. Smart then said it was Harris's turn. And again, Harris went along, and as Smart began choking him, it became clear that he was not going to let go. Harris pretended to pass out, and Smart released the hose. When he opened his eyes, Smart became rattled and said he was scared because Harris had passed out. Harris was much larger than Smart, which was probably another reason why he survived. Another reason would be that he also refused drinks that Smart had prepared earlier in the evening. Smart drove Harris back to Indianapolis, and they agreed to meet again the following week. In order to learn more about Smart, Vandegriff arranged to have Harris and Smart followed when they met up again, but Smart never showed. Mmm. He can smell the sting. Believing Harris's story, Vandegriff turned again to the police, but this time he contacted Mary Wilson, a detective who worked in missing persons. She drove Harris to the wealthy area outside of Indianapolis, hoping that he might recognize the house that Smart took him to, but they came up empty. Ugh. A year later, Harris met Smart again, but when they happened to stop at the same bar. So it wasn't like a planned Mm-mm, They just up. ran into each other. Harris got Smart's license plate number, which he gave to Wilson, and she found that the plate was registered to Herbert Bowmeister, or Herb as we know him. Herb. As Wilson discovered more about Herb, she agreed with Vandegriff. Harris had narrowly escaped becoming the victim of a serial killer. Ah. Wilson went to the store to confront Herb, telling him that he was a suspect in an ongoing investigation into several missing men. She asked that he let investigators search his home. Herb refused and told her that in the future she should go through his lawyer. Wilson then went to Juliana, telling her what she had told her husband, hoping to get her to agree to a search. Although she was shocked by what she heard, she also refused. Damn. Yeah. Next, Wilson tried to get county officials to issue a search warrant, but they refused, saying that there was not enough conclusive evidence to warrant it, which is insane. How did how did Juliana not put two and two together? Like. Hello, you found, your son found a skeleton Listen, in your backyard. I, now there's people missing. There's cops at your house. Listen, she endured a two-month institutionalization and was still head over heels in love with them. They had separated on and off, argued on and off for several years, and she's just now to a point where she's staying with his mom because of all the chaos he's bringing into life. Who's used to say at this moment in time she's still not in love with his crazy-ass man. It's hard to say. Herb seemed to suffer an emotional breakdown over the next six months, and Juliana had finally reached her limit. The Children's Bureau canceled the contract with Save-A-Lot, and she was filing bankruptcy. It was decided that the Save-A-Lot stores needed to be closed, and the fairy tale she had been living began to fall apart, began to fall apart around her, as did the loyalty she held to her husband. Ooh. Mm-hmm. Good. 
She kept replaying this image of the skeleton that Eric had discovered two years prior, and it hadn't left her mind since she first spoke to Wilson. Juliana filed for divorce and told Wilson about the skeleton. She admitted that they had only consummated their marriage six times in 25 years of marriage. She also let detectives search the property. Herb and Eric were visiting his mother at Lake Wawasee, and Juliana picked up the phone and called her lawyer. On June 24, 1996, Wilson and three other officers walked onto the grassy area next to the Bowmeister's patio. As they looked, they could see the small rocks and pebbles where the Bowmeister children had played were actually bone fragments. Mm-hmm. Forensic tests confirmed that they were human remains. Could you imagine, like, nope. look at these pebbles, Mom, and it'd just be a bunch of bone fragments? It's just teeth. <laughs> nope. The next day, police and firemen began excavating on site. Bones were everywhere, even on the neighbor's property. Oh, that property line. I'd have sued. <laughs> I mean, could... I was just as a neighbor, you'd be walking down your little farm thing and you'd be like, oh, there's a bone. Like, just being like, I'd imagine this is a wealthy, like, retirement community where people just kind of come and die. And, like, you're just walking with, like, your little shih tzu or whatever rich white people own when they're old. And, like, you got your walking stick and you're just walking your property line because you want to make sure no pesky kids have their fence over on your side of the property. And then she's like, oh, there's a femur. Huh. Yeah, but, I mean, if you're, I mean, I don't... You can't say it's from some wild animal that died because, I mean, mm. I mean, I don't know. Early searches found 5,500 bone fragments and teeth. It was estimated that the bones were from 11 men, though only four victims could be identified, which was Goodlett, aged 34, Stephen Hale, aged 26, Richard Hamilton, aged 20, and Annual Resendez, aged 31. Uh, uh, uh. Juliana began to panic and feared for the safety of Eric, who was with Herb at the time all of this was going on. Yeah. The authorities grew concerned as well. Herb and Juliana were in the beginning stages of divorce, so things could get a little messy. Yeah. It was decided that before the discoveries of the Bowmeisters hit the news, Herb would be served with custody papers demanding that Eric be returned to Juliana. When Herb was served, he turned Eric over without incident, figuring that it was just legal maneuvering. So uh-huh. that was that was pretty good. Good on their part. Yeah. And once news of the Bones discovery was made public, Herb vanished. Just poof. Pulled a copper field. On July 3rd, 1996, his body was discovered inside his car at Pinery Park, Ontario, Canada. Herb apparently had shot himself in the forehead with a 357 Magnum. He left a three-page suicide note explaining why he took his life, citing problems with the business and his failing marriage. Although, everyone knows there was a lot more than that. Clearly. There was no mention of the murder victim scattered across his backyard, and with Juliana's help, investigators linked Herb to the I-70 murders. Juliana provided receipts showing that Herb had traveled I-70 during the times that the bodies were found along the interstate. Bodies stopped appearing along I-70 about the time that Herb moved into Fox Hollow Farms because he now had the ultimate dumping ground. All 18 acres. It's just really sickening. 
Blech. I mean, <clears throat> I can't imagine. I mean, I don't. 18 acres. You're probably not going to be really close to neighbors, but like, could you imagine just like walking your dog, whatever, riding your horse, and you're like waving at your neighbor, not even realizing mm-hmm. that you're waving at a serial killer who mm-hmm. has bones scattered all over his property mm-hmm. and mannequins in his, his pool area. Right, which makes me wonder like, obviously, I'm going to just assume. That their cause of death was strangulation. Because if that's the way he was going to take Tony Harris out, that's probably what happened to these other men that disappeared. Now, what happened to their bodies after, I don't know. I don't know if he just took them out and buried them somewhere. I mean, or what exactly his... I mean, if he buried them, they would all be in one place, but there was bones everywhere. That's what I'm saying. I don't know. <clears throat> like, I'll, Maybe like, he chose some more of them. I don't know if he just chucked them in a wood chipper. I don't know. Ooh, that would explain it being scattered everywhere a little bit better. I mean... I mean, yeah, you could just take it like a... Like a... One of those snow machines. You're just like, here goes the arm. <sighs> pepper your yard with it. I don't know. That's but I mean, crazy then. Because, I mean, I think if he, if he was actually, like, chopping them up post-mortem and stuff, like, that would be a little harder to hide. Yeah, they probably would have found some kind of evidence somewhere. But yeah. I don't know. It's hard to say. What do you think he did? You let us know. Yeah, what did he do to these poor men post-mortem? Give us, give us your opinions. And as always, stay tuned. Next week. Yeah. Also, before we go, we are going to be at LA East on the 13th doing an event with the Raleigh County Humane Society. So, you should come and check it out and feel free to make monetary and or physical wishlist item donations so that way you can get entered into our drawing because right now... We have two people entered. One of them is a lovely man named Rick, who sadly recently had to put his best doggo friend down. And Angela, who is a co-worker that none of us really like. And I can say that <laughs> because she's not going to listen. She says she doesn't have the time, but whatever. So, yeah. Come and out you, and see us. And, you know, anybody who wants to uh, make fun of the lisp I had last week, cough, cough, Roy, uh, you should make a donation to make up for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Catch her outside L.A. East. <laughs> How about that? Be safe. Bye. Thanks for listening to Two Jane Does. I'm Emily. And I'm Kayla. Remember to tune in every Monday now at 8 p.m. as we dive into a new case. Please follow us on Spotify, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, and leave us a good review. Catch us on Facebook at Two Jane Does, where you can find updates on our episodes and links to our other social media accounts. If you have any cases that you want us to cover and go into detail with, you can leave us a message there.